This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Julian, Benton, Levi, and Sam VR. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Joanna, who asks, Did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, verse 22, or when the tongues of fire appeared? Well, Joanna, the passage in John 20 describes Jesus commissioning the disciples and sending them out. When he says, Receive the Holy Spirit, John says that Jesus breathed on them, and that certainly suggests that he was giving them the Holy Spirit at that moment. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak as the Spirit directs them. Now, People often refer to this moment at Pentecost as the coming of the Holy Spirit, which makes it sound like before this, the Spirit wasn't there yet. But the reality is more complicated. We actually see the Spirit at work before Pentecost, in fact, throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. John chapter 20, verse 22 is one example, and I would say that clearly in that passage, the disciples really do receive the Holy Spirit as Jesus breathes on them. However, what happened at Pentecost marked a new fullness in the Spirit's work. After Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is present with believers in a way that had never happened before as the comforter that Jesus had promised them. You might think of it this way. Sometimes you receive a gift, but you have to wait a while before you can open it and start enjoying it. The gift of the Spirit seems to have worked that way. Jesus gave it to the disciples gathered in John 20, But it was at Pentecost that the Spirit was poured out on them, and they began to enjoy the gift. And now Julian asks, There are some sins in the Bible that were or are punishable by death, but are not crimes in modern law. Is it our job to deliver that punishment, or God's? Julian, it's a fascinating question. You'll want to take a look at chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, which is about the law of God, because it actually addresses this precise point. When ancient Israel was being organized as a political kingdom, God gave them laws to govern the state. We call these the judicial laws, and they include the kind of penalties that you're talking about. But the Confession tells us that when the political kingdom of Israel ended, those judicial laws expired along with it. So no one today is obliged to enforce those laws. Their only application now is this. They reveal principles that can guide us in our own judicial and political systems. Legally speaking, therefore, it's not our job as believers to punish people for violating those Old Testament laws. Now, on the other hand, all sin is punishable by death, whether it's against man's law or not. And it is God who administers that punishment. 
The only way to be delivered from death for sin is to be united to Jesus Christ and be judged on his righteousness, not our own. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Benton. Let's give him a round of applause. Here's Benton's question. What are your general thoughts about the false books of the Bible? For example, the books of Thomas, Enoch, and Tobit. This is a wonderful question, Benton, but we have to begin by making a distinction. You mentioned three examples, but they don't all belong to the same category. The books of Enoch and Tobit that you mentioned belong to one group, while the so-called Gospel of Thomas belongs to another. Now, neither one of these groups is inspired by God, but one of them is much better than the other. So let's break it all down. First of all, there are 66 canonical books of the Old and New Testament. These books were all inspired by God through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of their human authors. The books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew over the course of many centuries, starting in the days of Moses and continuing to about 400 years prior to the birth of Jesus. The books of the New Testament were written in Greek over the course of about half a century, give or take, from the early missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul until the death of John in approximately A.D. 90. The book of Enoch, the book of Tobit, and a number of other books belong to a category called the Apocrypha, or sometimes the Deuterocanonical books. I like the second term better, Deuterocanonical, because it pinpoints when they were written, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Mostly, these books were written in Greek or Aramaic, and the Jews never considered them to be part of Holy Scripture. However, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in a work that is called the Septuagint, the translators of that work included these other Greek-language texts as well. And later, when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the Septuagint rather than working from the Hebrew Bible, and as a result, he included these deuterocanonical books in his translation of the Bible. Now, these books aren't necessarily bad, they're just not biblical. The Belgic Confession, one of the great confessions of faith of the Reformation, says that we can read them and even learn from them, but only to the extent that they agree with the actual scriptures. The Westminster Confession, which is our own confession of faith, says that because these are not inspired by God, they are of no authority in the church, and they should only be used as any other human writings would be used. Now, the Gospel of Thomas, on the other hand, that belongs in a different category called the Gnostic writings. That's Gnostic. It sounds like it begins with an N, but it actually begins with a G-N. These are books that were written after the close of the New Testament, but they often pretend like they were written earlier, and they'll use the names of people mentioned in the Bible, like Thomas, to make it seem like they were products of the apostolic era. They teach a form of Greek philosophy called Gnosticism which uses some of the language of the apostles, but it distorts their meaning. 
Now, if you ever hear someone accusing the early church of taking books out of the Bible or suppressing books of the Bible, this is what they're really talking about. No one deleted any of the inspired books of the Bible, but the early church did warn people about these later writings and their deceptive claims. Imagine if we wrote a speech today and called it the Second Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln. It was written more than 150 years after Lincoln's death, and it uses the language of the 21st century, so it's obviously not authentic. If a historian warned people that our Second Gettysburg Address was an imposter, would we accuse him of deleting one of the speeches of Abe Lincoln? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. But that's what people who make this accusation about the early church are essentially doing. Unlike the deuterocanonical books, which offer interesting historical insights, if nothing else, the Gnostic books are more dangerous because of the deceptive and distorted picture they give of Christianity. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't read them, but I am saying that if you do, remember, it's not Christianity they're teaching, but something else. You can learn a lot about Greek philosophy and religion from those books, but not about biblical Christianity. The overall lesson is this. No human writing speaks to us with the authority of God's word. Only the scriptures can bind our consciences, so we shouldn't put any human writing on the same pedestal. They can be helpful, just as the ancient creeds and the historical confessions of faith are helpful. But in the end, only scripture reveals the will of God to us in perfection. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Levi wants to know, what is your favorite season? Levi, my favorite season by far is fall or autumn, when the air gets crisp and the leaves change color, when school is in session and winter is still on the horizon. Unfortunately, fall seems to get shorter and shorter around here. Summer lingers on and on, and winter starts way too soon. So we're lucky if we get just a few weeks of my favorite season. But while it's here, I do my best to enjoy it before the leaves fall from the trees and the snow blankets everything. And now Sam VR wants to know, what do you want for Christmas? What does Lori want? What about your cats? Well, Sam, I told Lori I only wanted one thing for Christmas, and she said, there's no Christmas this year because you went to Paris. So it seems that going to Paris was what Lori and I both wanted for Christmas, and so we got it a little bit early. This Christmas, I'll just be rooting for everyone else to get what they want, too. I did ask my cats what they wanted, and here's what they said. Georgie wants France to win the World Cup, so we should find out later today whether or not he gets his Christmas present. Tilly says that she just wants Georgie to leave her in peace. And I definitely don't think she's going to get what she wants for Christmas. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.